What if I told you that your outlook on life could directly impact your health? Over the last five decades, a growing body of research has linked an optimistic point of view to better overall health and longevity. Optimism appears to help people cope with disease and recover from surgery, while conversely, pessimism is related to negative health outcomes. Studies have shown that pessimistic individuals were three times more likely to develop hypertension, twice as likely to develop heart disease, and had a 42% higher rate of death than optimistic persons. Optimistic people report feeling better than equally healthy pessimistic people, and when they encounter an adverse event like heart surgery, they usually bounce back quicker. The positive relationship between optimism and health appear, appears to last for decades, as survival rates for cancer, diabetes, and HIV remain higher many years after diagnoses for the most optimistic people. And at least one study has shown that an optimistic outlook in early life predicts a lower rate of death up to 40 years later. So how can someone's outlook have such a dramatic association with their health? Can humans simply will good health and quality of life into existence? And if so, can we change our outlooks and become more optimistic or help others to be more optimistic in order to improve health? Or could a skeptic look at this research and wonder if it's the other way around, that people who are healthier and have better quality of lives can afford to be more optimistic? Or you know, is this relationship confounded in that better socioeconomic status or other life conditions allow some people to be more optimistic and healthier? We're going to dig into this link between optimism and health on this episode of our podcast and see if our experts can convince the pessimistic skeptics out there that this relationship is real. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, I'm joined by two researchers whose work has focused on optimism. First, I wanna introduce Eric Kim, assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of British Columbia and research scholar at the Michael Smith Foundation for Health. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, I'm really excited today. Uh, we're also enjoyed, uh, joined by Bill Chopik, assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Michigan State University. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Hi, thanks so much, happy to be here. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us. Um, this will be a really fun conversation, I think. Um, but, you know, before we start, I think it's always a good idea to start with some definitions. So can one of you, maybe Eric, can you define what we mean by optimism? Sure. Yes. Uh, the generalized expectation that uh, better things will happen in the future. So it's quite a simple definition. Oh. That is simple. That's exactly what I thought it was. Well, Bill, do you want to expand upon that? I, I've done very little bit of reading in this area, but I, it seems like there's kind of two components of optimism. Yeah, that's right. So in general, it's a delay definition that most people would think of is a pretty good guidance. But mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the core features, it mostly has to do with your ability to perceive and emphasize good things that are happening. So par mm -hmm. part of being an optimist is that you have to know when good things are happening. You have to have insight into those things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second is that the future, like Eric said, holds more of those things than negative ones. So a lot of it is kind of being attuned to your environment and then also having the expectation that those good things will keep coming. Huh, that's, re that's really interesting. So how do you all measure optimism? 
Go for it, Bill. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, handing it I off. Mean, yes, it's, it, it's yeah, hard to learn how you measure it, and then I'll decide like, how I measure it, and we yeah. can bounce it back. Yeah, uh, so, so the vast majority of people will literally ask people questions about how they think about the future. So, hmm. you know, what, for example, one item people will say, um, in uncertain times, I usually expect the best. And, you know, people will provide a rating of that, but there's been all sorts of different measures throughout the years. So that's by far the most common one, but other people have coded, you know, people's open-ended responses. So I'll give you a prompt, you know, what do you think your week will be like? Uh, how did this particular event affect you? Um, sometimes people have participants estimate the likelihood of something. So it's the likelihood oh, yeah. that say, you'll get in a car accident this week or something like that. Um, but by far, I think most um, social behavioral scientists will literally just ask people, say, hey, are you pretty optimistic? <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, Eric, and anything to add on that? How do you measure optimism? Yeah, uh, the same ways that uh, Bill has talked about and just because of practical, practical reasons, we usually use the self-report measure. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that are kind of able to be embedded in large epi, epi surveys. But uh, a new emerging frontier that's really exciting too is that people are using uh, machine learning methods to kind of automatically try to assess different psychological oh. characteristics and optimism is one of them. That's really interesting. So, uh, you know, when you talk about self-report, I wonder, is there any, is there such an idea of a, um, is there such a reality of objective optimism? So for example, if you ask someone, like you said, are you optimistic? I, I could see a lot of people being like, yeah, I'm a really optimistic person. But when it comes to how they really view the world, they're actually not so optimistic or the other way around. I think it's kind of in vogue to be pessimistic and cynical. So people might say, oh, I'm a pessimist, but like really when it comes down to it, they have an optimistic outlook. So is there any way to, do you as researchers try to, to tap into objective versus subjective notions of optimism? I mean, in a way, optimism is purely subjective. Purely subjective. Uh, it's, or, you know, to some extent, it's a lot of it's in your head. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I get, I get what you're saying because there's limitations with all sorts of self-reports. So if you ask me how optimistic I am, I said, yeah, I'm perfectly delusional that my future is full of amazing <laughs> things. And you would say like, oh, I don't quite trust, you know, that you have great insight into that. Um, but you know, a lot of the 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 interesting thing is that again, it seems a little problematic that you could just ask people, but mm -hmm. the fact that it kind of predicts stuff is interesting. So mm -hmm. even with this imperfect self-report convenience measure, it's predicting how long people live, the types of health behavior they do. It correlates with a lot of those other measures I mentioned, you know, how people come up with explanations for what happens to them. Uh, you know, what they expect they should get on a test or what happens if I will, me walking into this job interview. Um, so yeah, like, like a lot of self-report measures, they're, they're biased to a certain degree, but you know, it looks like you're picking up on some, some signal in there. Right, but in many ways you're saying the, the subjective aspect of it is what actually matters. It's what you believe or at least believe you believe, you know? Um, I mean, I guess I was getting at a weird little meta nuance of like whether people actually view the world objectively, uh, optimistically. Um, but it sounds like you're saying if you just ask someone, are you optimistic, that alone is correlated with all of these positive health outcomes. Is that, that a true statement? It is, yes, yeah. Okay, and, cool. Um, I think there's an interesting example too, when you ask that question of that, actually Winston Churchill had this ability to use multiple lenses. So um, he kind of had this skeptical point of view and he was able to see threats that were emerging that most of his colleagues didn't acknowledge at all. 
but then he had this uh, amazing optimism that helped carry his country through this, these terrible times, like when his country cities were being bombed, he, he helped them carry through. So that's a, actually, thank you for bringing up that anecdote because it gets at a question that I was going to ask you, which is that, uh, you know, one thing about optimism is you can be blindly optimistic, you know? So you were saying Churchill had the ability to actually see real threats and, and be able to be aware of those real threats, but also be optimistic that the future um, has good things in store, even through something as horrible as World War II. So I was going to ask you about that. Is, is blind optimism in, you know, unrealistic optimism, could there be a, a, a um, threshold to, <laughs> to that where it actually is not such a good thing for you? Yeah, uh, so there is this uniquely human thing where we like to be optimistic about stuff. You know, we don't get out of bed and thinking, oh, today's going to be terrible. I'm going to trip down the stairs. I'm going to spill coffee all over myself. <laughs> That's not the human thing that we enjoy doing. We like tackling problems. Um, or there's this joke that I really love that uh, optimists think that we live in the best of all possible worlds and pessimists agree uh, that it would never get better. Um, nice. and yeah, so, so, you know, a lot of critics of opt optimism research will say, you know, another interpretation of optimists is exactly what you're getting into. The fact that we're divorced from reality, mm -hmm. uh, that, um, you know, but, but I think the field has done a pretty good job at showing that no, they're just not naive Pollyanna, Pollyanna ish people, mm -hmm. uh, but rather, you know, like Eric and, like Eric said with the Winston Churchill example, you can kind of flexibly apply your positivity and you know that'll guide your behaviors and your decisions. So when should I disengage from this thing that you know the positive outcome is not likely anymore? You know, when is it worthwhile to engage and kind of try uh, push the extra mile? Um, so yeah, so I think so I think in general there's this uh, caricature of optimism that isn't totally fair uh, for the average optimist because they um, yeah they're, they're actually really in tune with. Uh, life and what's going on around them. That's uh, it's just that they're kind of smart enough to know when to stop. Well, that, that actually, that, that, that I, in doing a little bit of research for this podcast, I've, I've found some research showing that, that actually people who are optimistic actually are, seem to be better at judging risk. Like when you were talking about asking about probabilities of bad or, or good events happening, that optimists seem to have the ability to do that a little bit better, which honestly is kind of surprising to me because again, I have that Pollyanna, Pollyanna, um, that's a really hard name to say, by the way, <laughs> Pollyanna-ish um, caricature, which is that being super optimistic might be, mean being divorced from reality, but that doesn't seem to be the case is what you're saying. Yeah, I, huh. I agree. And I think that's the case for the vast majority. I, I think there are case examples that um, people might be perhaps in like a manic state where they have mm -hmm. this like a pathology and they mm -hmm. have this unrealistic optimism in that way. And people might take the, that very small percentage of the population in those states and maybe generalize it to other optimists, but it's, it's really not a fair characterization of, of the vast majority of the population. That's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I don't want to go, I want to start getting into some of the, like the health consequences of optimism, but I'll, I'm just super fascinated in this construct. And I want to ask, how does it tie into say mental health? So, so I'll give you an example. You guys are going to be my shrinks for a little while here. <laughs> um, myself, I, I'm a very optimistic person. I really truly sure. see the world as you know, most things look like they're heading in the right direction for me. Things have been good. That being said, I do suffer from anxiety. So I do have these crushing bouts every now and then, as a lot of us do, especially during this pandemic, yes. that, you know, all the little things in life seem 
unbearable and an inability to cope with them or get past them. So it's been hard for me to balance that kind of my, my psychological trait with my kind of mental health aspect that's going on during the pandemic. And how do those two things, how do you um, disassociate those two things or do you? Eric, you wanna take sure? Sure, yeah, I think, uh, I like to think of psychological characteristic as kind of like a, a beautiful mountain landscape where some of the mountains represent different characteristics and we're high and low in some of them. And then I think that's a, a better way to think about it. So I, I too actually am optimistic and also have anxiety. Okay, <laughs> you know? so this is kind yeah, of in, in academia probably. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's been uh, happening during the pandemic too. So uh, yeah, they some factors do tend to cluster together, uh, but there's also lots of uh, variation within people too. So. Um, Optimism and anxiety is actually something that clusters together, and I've done some really? policies that I've I've looked at. Yeah, so. that's really interesting. Wow. Okay. Huh. I could I could see how it's like you know uh, the psychic pressure of being optimistic for so long. You know, uh, every now and then you you just need to just be really anxious about something and just think it's not going to work out, and then you reset and become more optimistic again. Things are going so well. I'm freaking out. How amazing everything is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The other shoe's got to fall at some point, right? Um, cool. Well, uh, okay. I think we've defined the construct. Um, I have a lot more to ask you about how it works and all that, but you know, did I miss anything in the intro? Are there any really interesting links to health that I didn't mention that you all want to throw out there? Maybe something from your research. We can talk about that. I, yeah. Uh, there's one study I could talk about, but I actually had a question for you, Ryan. Um, okay, sure. I've seen some of your, your cool work on personality and cognitive aging outcomes. And I just want to yeah, get your thoughts on how some of these uh, psychological factors might. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, wow. Now I'm getting yeah. interviewed. Um, yeah, we should say for the listeners that um, there has been some overlap between Eric and my and Bill's work and in, in some of the um, uh, psychological, psychosocial aspects of dementia and cognition work that I do. And actually, Eric has, has worked with my brother, who's a, an epidemiologist as well, Peter James at Harvard. First time I'm mentioning him on the podcast, gets a shout out um, and, and done some really cool work on that. Um, and you know, it definitely there seems to be a relationship between people's personality traits, neuroticism, extroversion, and uh, ability to cope with um, the, the pathology of dementia. So as Alzheimer's builds up in people's brain, certain personality traits, uh, some of our research is showing, allows you to um, have a higher burden of Alzheimer's pathology in your brain before you start experiencing cognitive impairment. So, and we're, and we're really interested in, in going even further, delving into, you know, what are some of the mechanisms there? Um, there's also this related concept of purpose in life. You know, in our older uh, adult cohorts, when you ask people a simple question about, you know, what's the reason that you have to get up out of bed in the morning? Um, simple questions tapping into that construct are highly correlated with dementia with well, lower dementia, I should say, with longevity, uh, with lower disability. And um, it's always been super fascinating to me that just that outlook on life um, has these dramatic health effects. So thank you for asking me about my work. <laughs> and I know you've published in some, you have a paper on dementia as well, right? Yes, yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. I, I Bill, anything you wanna throw in from your work? Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think, there's a few general themes though that it's 
not necessarily that if it's personality or purpose in life or optimism, it's not like this magical feeling where your skin tingles and you just have superpowers and you just live longer. Uh, You know, it's it's mostly that these people are doing enacting positive health behavior. So I I think you did a really great coverage where, you know, they have lower rates of all these kind of um, comorbidities and disease Mm -hmm. diagnoses and they live longer. Um, But when you actually look at it, they're they're doing healthier things for the vast majority Ah, of their lives. They're eating more vegetables, they're eating the Mediterranean diets, they're uh, higher in physical activity. And, you know, Eric's work has been really great at showing that, you know, here are the various mechanisms. Here's a few you kind of ruling out. Uh, mm-hmm. So that thing about um, just being wholly optimistic, giving you superpowers, that's not the mechanism. It's mostly like stuff people do. Interesting. Um, so it's really me- mediated by behavior is, is really what you think is going on here. Yeah. Yeah. The stuff that translates that doctors tell you, you should do all the time optimists are probably more likely to do those things more likely to actually do them yeah because they think again they think it'll work out uh, <laughs> right? it's an actual <laughs> reason to do them it's going to have yeah. a, an effect on my life so i should this will turn out well so as opposed to why the heck would i stop eating this ice cream i'm going to die tomorrow anyhow <laughs> go for a run that can as well yeah. right yeah so yeah exactly well that's really interesting so i want to delve into that though because um it sounds like you're saying that's the main mechanism here but but is there um, something to the actual power of thought that actually ha- I'm thinking of placebo effects. I mean, we, we have clear evidence from, you know, thousands of trials. Every time we do a clinical trial, we have a placebo. Uh, the reason we do that is because just thinking that you're doing something good for yourself has actual health benefits, right? So, um, you know, there's just all sorts of research that just willing health into existence has actual physiological consequences. Do you think that that could be going on with optimism as well. Eric's the expert, so I'll let him chime in. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's really interesting because um, you know, the placebo effect is seen as kind of like a nuisance variable in biomedical right. research, but that is what we're kind of studying here, psychological effects, and we are seeing quite uh, dramatic associations. Um, I, yeah, I want to think of another example here of, of uh, someone who's really good at willing stuff into reality, and it's Steve Jobs. He was famous for having this... Mm. Uh, reality distortion field where he, he personally did not believe that there are like limitations to things uh-huh. and he also was able to convince other people and and people were able to do pretty amazing things so wow if we bring it down several several notches of intensity and think about the regular person and, and translate into health behaviors just like we were talking about before yeah we super interesting unfortunately it didn't work out with his pancreatic cancer because as, as i understand it he tried to will that out of existence <laughs> instead of actually treating it um oh, i think it was pancreatic cancer but anyways neither here nor there rest in peace steve jobs um but yeah no that, i think that is so 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 it sounds like you're saying there's a little bit of a combination of enacting behavior based on your optimism and perhaps an actual direct physiologic relationship between this this quote unquote placebo effect. I agree with you, Eric. I, I think it's so crazy that Western medicine throws away the placebo effect. Like it's a nuisance variable <laughs> when it's like, Hey, maybe that's where the action is here. If we could just tell people that you could feel better and they feel better, like there, there's something kind of magical there that I think um, Eastern medicine taps into a little bit more than Western medicine. But anyways, that's a, uh, it's probably going off on a tangent, um, but yeah, really cool and fascinating stuff. So we've gotten into some of the mechanisms here, but um, I, you know, 
Bill, I think you told me in a little bit of communications that we had beforehand that, um, you know, there, there's certain, there's several psychological and cognitive mechanisms that enhance health that, that an optimistic person might have. And you kind of gave me some, a list of, you know, self-regulation, perception of daily stressors. I mean, do you want to elaborate on some of these mechanisms? Yeah, for sure. So, um, like I, I told you before, we ask in these kind of superficial ways, you know, are you relatively optimistic or do you expect good things in the future? Um, but it's actually much, much deeper than that. So people who say yes to those kinds of questions have all sorts of interesting and weird and fascinating cognitive tendencies. Mm -hmm. um, so when, for example, when something really terrible happens, they're more likely to attribute it to luck or external factors. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, why did a meteor fall in your backyard last night? Uh, you know, the optimist will say it's a random thing of the universe, whereas mm -hmm. a chronically pessimistic person says, this is, my whole life has been leading to a meteor falling immediately in my backyard. It's the type of thinking- I brought this into. on myself. This exactly. Meteor. I was looking at the sky last night and <laughs> the meteor gave me an ugly look and I didn't right. say anything. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but then when good things happen, they often attribute it to things that they do. So it's like, oh, I enacted the things that brought about this. So one of the most fascinating consistent things we see with optimism is that optimists think that they have control over their lives and they expect mm. positive things and then they literally experience positive things so i think when a lot of people read this literature they're like why are all these good things happening to people who think good things happen mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of it is because the attributions they make when good and bad things happen so pessimists will do the self-blame they'll think that nothing gets better they think that they don't have much control over their lives um and, and you see that self-fulfilling prophecy almost right absolutely and you know there are there are little tricks that optimists do um so they report receiving more support from other people than those people say that they support them <laughs> uh that's really and, interesting <laughs> yeah you, in one sense you'd be like that seems really weird and problematic and it's actually kind of a great feeling to think that you have all this support uh so yeah. that, that's partially why they feel better all the time. And um, so, yeah, they have these interesting cognitive uh, tricks that uh, on average, and then the question, which we'll talk about at some point is, how do you get those tricks? Uh, can you mm -hmm. learn those tricks or is that possible at all? So, 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 so it sounds like optimism, we define it really simply in the beginning, but it really seems like it's kind of a proxy for a much larger constellation of, of, view, of not just viewpoints, but coping mechanisms, uh, behaviors even, um, ways of interacting with other human beings. Yeah. Um, wow, very yeah. interesting. Are there any um, like studies showing, have, have you, do you guys do any biomarker studies? I'm just curious, like, you know, like do, we, do people actually have better physiological functioning when they're optimistic? Uh, we, we've been doing some biomarker studies looking at uh, the correlates of optimism mm -hmm. and biomarkers. And I also want to mention here, uh, there's a great scientist, Laura Kudzianski, who's been pioneering a lot of this work as well. Hmm. Um, so for example, in some of the recent work we've been doing, we looked at five uh, different cohorts and looked at it optimism in relation to markers of aging, like telomere length and uh, DNA methylation aging. We actually saw null results across all of those outcomes in oh. all, all the study. Yeah. Interesting. And, uh, recently published. So it's kind of like a, maybe a biomarker that doesn't work, but there's some other evidence suggesting that people with higher optimism have uh, things like lower inflammation. Mm. 
um, so that that's one of the pathways too. Interesting. So these different outlooks and behaviors and all of that seems to have a manifest in the body in, in, in positive ways. Wow. All right. So now let's get into some skepticism because I know there's probably people listening to this, the pessimists out there who are saying, all right, yeah, I, I, I buy that there's this, this relationship, this, you know, correlation, but correlation is not causation, right? So how do you know that it's the optimism that's causing the good health? You know, like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like do optimistic people just like, have they just always been healthier and, and had better quality of life and therefore it afforded them the ability to be optimistic because everything's gone well for them so far? You know, I mean, is it a, again, I use the term self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, so how do you how do you determine that optimism is not a result of good health? You know that it's instead a causal mechanism for good health. I think uh, some of the later, the more recent studies on this topic have been trying to methodologically really do a careful job at this, kind of controlling for confounders in a very careful way, mm -hmm. uh, removing people with um, health conditions near the baseline to help reverse causality and uh, yeah, these kinds of uh, methods as well. And um, Bill, you have an interesting study where you looked at a lot of uh, yeah, different events, right? And looked at optimism. Yeah, I was just about to mention that. So yeah, so for years and years and years, people thought that it was bi-directional. So as you get sicker, you become more pessimistic or as you get healthier, you're more optimistic. And then, we, you know, a few years ago, we had a paper that kind of confirmed that. But then uh, we, we did this really impressive paper recently. We looked at people from three different countries, just thousands and thousands of people followed over time. And we looked at how their optimism changed before and after a bunch of events, like you getting divorced, but I'll stick to health for this. So being diagnosed with cancer, getting chronic illness, mm -hmm. just feeling sicker as well. Like if mm -hmm. I ask how healthy you are. Um, and what we found is that optimism is resilient to changes in health. So it doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And there's two ways you can take that result. Uh, one is the positive one, which I'll do as an optimist, uh, <laughs> that, oh, you know, the human spirit is so resilient that, you know, even in the face of really death and disease and your partner passing away and all these awful things, there's still something uniquely human where we, even in the worst dire circumstances, we like to expect good things in the future. Uh, so that's the positive interpretation. Uh, the negative one would be, you know, maybe optimists are not well attuned to reality. You know, there's a certain sense in which when terrible things happen to you, mm -hmm. you should be more careful and more uh, kind of attentive to negative things in life. So or the fact that you're optimistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the fact that optimism doesn't change at all is kind of scary. Like you wake up the same way thinking that life is gonna be amazing despite all these terrible things happening. Um, so yeah, so, so in general, it, it looks like, and there's been other studies too. So before and after people get diagnosed with cancer, mm -hmm. um, and it looks like optimism doesn't change. So, so when you, when you think about which comes first, mm -hmm. you know, there have been a few longitudinal studies that show that, you know, maybe optimism doesn't respond to, you know, when really terrible things happen to you. That's really interesting. So people, people's optimism in and of itself is pretty resilient to, <laughs> to negative things happening. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in many, I don't know. In many ways, that's maybe the only way to get through grieving and a, a horrible thing happening is is almost a, an unrealistic viewpoint that things are better than they actually are because the death of a loved one, for example, is just a horrible thing all the way around. And there's no way out of that other than saying, I have to pick myself up and, and see things in a good light when they're really not good. 
Um, that's interesting. So um, what about, okay, so we, we kind of dealt with this temporality issue with some of your studies, that, that's cool. But what about confounding? So I, I mentioned in the intro, like what if, it, what if it's just that certain people have better life circumstances going on? And so like, even though you start with a bunch of people and say they're midlife and they're just as healthy as, as each other at that point, right? But, um, but half of those people, the pessimists, let's say, have actually just had really crappy lives up to that point, you know? And then the people that were labeling optimists just have had a cushy, privileged life up to that point. And then, you know, going forward, you're gonna see these different manifestations in health, but could it be the result of what happened to them early, like through childhood, for example? Um, how do you adjust for those confounders? That's a great question. And there's multiple ways of looking at this. I, um, one pattern that we do see is that optimism is patterned by um, socioeconomic status. So uh, there's multiple ways of seeing that. And one way to see that too is that um, the better we do at things like income distribution and uh, better education systems, it helps enhance sense of optimism perhaps. Ah, interesting. Yeah, okay. that could be a, a mechanism to all these other outcomes too, like health outcomes and other mm -hmm. factors too. Um, and another interesting factor too is that um, there are optimists at all levels of, of all different types of social structural factors we can think of, uh, mm. going all the way to you know, the very poor and lower educated to all the way to the top and all kinds of other adversities too. So somehow people are able to, yeah, be optimistic at all kinds of levels. But I, I think it's a kind of public health imperative to keep um, going at the social structural and social determinants of health because you know, optimism is too apart reflected in that. Interesting. So, so it sounds like you're saying there is a correlation between socioeconomic status and optimism. Because I was gonna, I was gonna really delve into that. You know, in many ways, it seems like optimism is kind of a privilege that is afforded to the few that um, have the, you know, ability to be optimistic because good things have happened in their lives. So, and it sounds like you're, in some ways, confirming that that there is a correlation at a population level yes. between SES and optimism. But at the same time, mm -hmm. there's variation in individual optimism at any level of that gradient yes. of socioeconomic status. Yeah, yeah that, that's right. super interesting. And I, I, it's, um, I, I guess I didn't think about this when I was putting the, our outline of our talk together here, our, our discussion, but um, you're making me think of, you know, can we have population shifts in optimism? Can we actually target optimism at the population level and move people you know, shift it over Jeffrey Rose style and, you know, move optimism, that whole curve over and have um, better results for the entire population. Or is that too Orwellian? And is that saying, you know, oh, we're not going to actually change the actual, you know, living situations of people. We're just going to make them more optimistic about the crap that they're living through. What do you think, Bill? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's incredibly hard. So I'm actually pretty skeptical about changing traits like that really dramatically. Okay. Um, you know, there's a bunch of good you can do in people's lives. So, you know, mm -hmm. increasing their living situations, uh, you know, if that makes them live longer and full of additional years of their life with the people they love, whether or not they love tomorrow, you know, think that they're super optimistic is a little bit secondary. Um, I see. But so you doing, think it's more important to actually change those life circumstances than people's viewpoint on it if you want to actually shift the population curve in health? Or yeah, or that, that'll be the targeted things instead of just, you know, think positively, like going to someone who's like not, you know, really suffering and saying mm -hmm. think positively. That's a not great advice, not, not even helpful advice. Um, yeah. But, you know, one thing we're, we're doing now is we're looking at 
uh, cross-cultural variation and optimism and how that might affect how you change over time. Mm -hmm. So, so part of it is like this weird Matthew effect where kind of the good things keep coming to you and they accumulate, you know, that's sort of a lifespan question. And mm -hmm. part of that might have to do with the conditions into which you're born, uh, whether that be kind of, so I'm from Chicago and Chicago is a very hey, heterogeneous place, oh, yeah. uh, you know, across the whole spectrum and the same thing with countries and, you know, countries can change at a really dramatic rate as well. Um, but, you know, un until now we didn't really have great data. So that's, that's kind of the project that uh, our lab's working on next is looking at how kind of local conditions can maybe change the trajectory of your life uh, wow. even when you're much, much older. That's really interesting. And so you mentioned, and maybe we don't have the data for this, but you mentioned the cross-cultural differences. Like, it, does, it, does it appear that certain cultures just are more optimistic in general than other cultures? I mean, I can think of a lot of stereotypes here, but I'm not sure. gonna say them on, <laughs> on tape. But there certainly are cultures that are stereotyped as being pessimistic, cynical, et cetera. It, yeah. it, does that have any bearing in reality? Uh, so there are, there are cross-cultural differences. So I, I, I'm working on this with my, I'll, I'll say a stereotype without saying it, but a very pouty Russian friend of mine uh, who's Dante uh, brings me ah crap Bob we're recording this oh man uh, so so yeah so there are cross cultural differences and it looks like it might modulate a little bit of how we change over time but um, I you know one underappreciated point and this gets back to what Eric was saying is that within a country there's so much variability mm -hmm. so. Right, and, that and even likewise, if you have these averages that are different, there's so much variation within a group that it's not yeah. even worth looking at. Yeah. yeah, to answer your question more directly, there's tons of privileged people who have every luxury in life. And are still and super negative. Exactly, they think the world will end tomorrow. Um, <laughs> yep. And I think that's, that's, and that's kind of why I think, not to speak for Eric fully, is why we kind of love this construct that mm -hmm. the correlation with SES isn't perfect. So yeah. you'll have this weird distribution of people that think the future is full of great things and those who think that's full of lousy things. Yeah, interesting. Well, I want to get more into the, oh, no, go ahead, Eric. Oh, I, I wanted to revisit the population health mm -hmm. idea some more too. And I, I think an analogy is uh, blood pressure where, mm -hmm. yeah, there's influences all kinds of levels like genetics, um, environment, as well as things that we can do at the individual level. So mm -hmm. um, optimism is about 25% influenced by genetics from twin studies. Oh, interesting. And, um, yeah, there are these social structural factors that we talked about too, which influences as well. And then um, huh. when we think about the individual level, I, I trained as a clinical psychologist. So the optimism intervention work is still early and uh, they're, they're showing small effects. We don't know how long they last, but hmm. I, I'm optimistic that we can move the needle on optimism because if we think of analogous uh, fields with uh, things like personality disorders, there's mm -hmm. some meta-analyses showing that we can move the needle on, on personalities. Although okay. it is difficult and hard work, we, we can do that. So there, yeah, there are, I think, uh, individual level interventions we can do too. So we can think at the individual level and also at the social structural level and have all layers of interventions coming at us. Okay, that, yeah. that was, I was going to ask you that next. It was, is there any work to actually try to change people's optimism? And it sounds like there is. Uh, are, you in, are you actually conducting any of those trials? Um, Yes, yes, we are. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Quite, quite difficult. Well, yeah, I bet. <laughs> well, very briefly, can you tell us like how an example of an intervention to increase people's optimism would even work? Yeah. Uh, so some of the lab studies that are showing um, small effects are things like 
thinking of different domains of your life and then thinking about the best possible outcome. Mm-hmm. That, that shows small short-term effects and then huh. like uh, gratitude interventions and, and some of these other things. But I, I think where the field needs to move more is kind of like the cognitive behavioral yeah. Uh, factors, yeah, that help really change thinking patterns and things like that. Change thinking patterns, exactly. I was thinking it sounds a lot <laughs> like uh, just your basic uh, going to your psychologist and talking about ways to change your patterns of, of thinking. So, super interesting. Um, well, you know, one thing that Bill mentioned to me before we started this that I thought was really interesting is that. Um, and this shows how optimism can be changed is that other people's level of optimism or pessimism can rub off on you. Right. Bill, you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. So we've, um, we mostly focused on uh, couples, although we're trying to Mm -hmm. do kind of broader friend network groups now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, so we followed married couples over time and see how, not only how your optimism changes, but you know, maybe the ways in which you change partially depend on if you found yourself married to a pessimist or married to yeah. an optimist. Uh, and it looks like there's some growth where it looks like if you're paired with an optimistic person, you do indeed become more optimistic. Oh, well. okay, good. Um, I was worried about it the other way around. Yeah, no, no, that you'll, it'll reveal. <laughs> the optimist that, like, gets dragged down into the depth yeah. of pessimism. So it more seems that optimists have more of a, a pull towards their optimism or do you, or, or is it, is your study designed to only look at one of the questions versus the other? Usually just one of the questions, although the mystery is like, why does, how can that rub off on us? You know, part yeah. of it, is it just being around someone who's positive all the time instead of all the negative pessimistic people we hang out with before or, yeah. or, or are they trying to change our thought patterns or yeah. do they offer up attributions that try to challenge what we're thinking. Um, I, again, yeah. not to go too much into my life here, but sure, I happen please. to be an optimist married to a pretty pessimistic uh, woman. Okay. And right. I don't know if she's going to listen to this, so I got to be careful with what I say. But I have noticed that we, we've we brought each other to a kind of a happy medium where I think that I have um, helped her to see the world a little bit more, more optimistically. And maybe she's helped me to see the world a little bit more realistically <laughs> than my little Pollyanna-ish view on the world. And, I, and yeah. I think the combination of the two can work for certain couples, you know. To talk about your wife, who sounds wonderful, and if she's listening, <laughs> and she amazing, is. the yeah. best spouse. Um, uh, is some of our research on couples shows that uh, the pessimists look like they particularly benefit from being married to optimists. So oh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, so it looks like it, it kind of compensates for it in a way. Oh, I'm going to win every argument from here on. It's on <laughs> record that I'm bringing you up. I'll send you the down. paper. I'll send you the paper to rub in her face. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> the scientific evidence that my viewpoint is the right one. No. This is why we should go to dinner here. Yeah. Um, exactly. so, um, so, so yeah, so it looks like uh, if you're married to an optimistic person, your outcomes are on par with optimists. Uh, oh, that's so like, really oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. A lot of, or at least the stuff we looked at, which was like health and chronic illness and a few other things. Huh. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is like, why, why do people change? Mm-hmm. We have a line of research with um, this professor named Nate Hudson, which can you change your personality if you wanted to? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of, yeah, the questions and Eric is working on this as well as like, if we know this is associated with good things, better health, greater longevity, mm-hmm. don't we want to cultivate those things? And, sure. and that's been a really challenging endeavor, but um, yeah, we're hoping to work on it in the next couple of years too. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it goes back to the questions I asked in the beginning about the parallels with mental health. I mean, like, you know, it, it's kind of ironic, but if, if, if someone's super pessimistic 
and they want to actually change their viewpoint of the world. They're already, by definition, in my mind, kind of optimistic, right? But like the definition of a pessimist would be like, I don't have any, there's nothing that's going to, it's not even worth it. Why would I change my viewpoint? You know? So, and it seems to be the same with like depression, you know, like one of the hardest parts of treating depression from what I hear and what I understand is, is convincing the depressed person that not being depressed is a goal that they want to actually shoot for. Right. So it sounds like there's some parallels here. There's this Dalai Lama quote that I came across where uh, he says, choose to be optimistic. It feels better. And like, I love that. But I also am like, but can you? (laughs) It sounds like you're saying you can. You can actually make that choice to be more optimistic. But but I guess what I'm getting at is, is that putting the cart before the horse? Once you choose to do that, have you already become more optimistic? (laughs) This is getting real meta. I was a philosophy major in college, so I apologize. I just like to, you know. Yeah. I, I wanted to bring um, what you said before too about uh, depression and that kind of mm-hmm. like hopelessness aspect. And yeah. uh, one of the methods that are quite effective that people use when uh, some of the traditional methods don't work is to calendar out the day to um, you know, do things that people intrinsically enjoy. And that mm-hmm. actually helps activate and help people bring out of depression. So, so that might huh. be another way to think about it where we're not only trying to, kind of will ourselves by thinking, but kind of doing behaviors, which make us more optimistic too. Ah, so, so is there, I know that there's some research that actually just doing behaviors can actually change, like, for example, just force a forced smile, like just actually smiling somehow can actually make you happier, even though you're supposed to smile as a result of being happy. Is, is that a parallel here? I think so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then even more complex behaviors too. And mm-hmm. so that we're, we're going on beyond the research now, but um, yeah, just bringing again from the uh, depression research, if we were to kind of do activities that do bring us optimism and, and hope, uh, maybe it's maybe volunteering or these kinds of activities, mm-hmm. activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just hypothesizing here. Wow. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the forefront of a lot of things right now. Mm-hmm. So when you look at broader personality traits, which it sounds like Brian has experience in, so, uh, so the volitional change, which is if you want to change yourself, can you? And, in a way it drives like the self-help book industry and this, a lot of people want to be happier and want to be healthier. It's true. Um, so we've done studies where we say, you know, if you had to pick something about yourself, what would you, to change, what would it be? And then they'll give us an answer. And then um, we did a really fun study where we gave people homework assignments to try to build that thing. So, you know, say you want say you were super shy and you want to be more outgoing. Mm-hmm. It would be like, try talking to a stranger at the bus stop or invite a friend out for coffee or, um, and then for, for neuroticism, if you're super anxious, a lot of those were the same kind of cognitive behavioral things that a therapist would tell you to like, try to reframe this thing or try to do an enjoyable activity. Um, huh. If you wanted to be more conscientious and on top of stuff, you know, here's a few things you can do as well. And yeah, the, the great insight from that paper is uh, you literally have to do the homework assignments. Yeah. Uh, in order to get better. It's, it's not just like, so it's funny that you mentioned the pessimist sitting on the couch being like, oh, I'd like to be more optimistic. And yeah, I'll just but that's not enough. That's not. Yeah. Enough. So yeah, like I'm sure the Dalai Lama has experience and <laughs> great wisdom and insight. Um, but yeah, like literally doing stuff also. And again, like seeking treatment, you said is one of the hardest things. And yeah, things are syntonic, meaning like you don't realize they're a problem. Um, 
So yeah, we've had some success in giving people tasks to do. Well, actually, in many ways, it ties back to what you were saying about what the mechanism is here. So it's almost like your bypass, like if optimism leads to healthy behaviors, this is kind of funny. It's like a hack. It's like a mind hack, right? So optimism leads to healthy behaviors, which leads to healthy outcomes. And you're saying, we're going to tell people to just pretend to do those healthy behaviors to make yourself more optimistic <laughs> and it'll lead to the healthier outcomes, but you're actually getting them to do the healthy behaviors and that, so you're kind of bypassing the worldview altogether and, and just having them do the things that'll lead to better health. Maybe, uh, Maybe. or getting, <laughs> getting them experience and good right, outcomes. Right, 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 yeah. learning how, well, that's what it is. It sounds like, like you guys have been telling me that the optimistic people just have better coping mechanisms and behaviors altogether, and they just know how to do them naturally. And so you're getting people who are pessimistic to take on some of these behaviors and become more natural, uh, make them more natural to them so that they're a little bit more secondhand instead of forced when they're trying to do it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so are there any sex differences? I don't know. I, I've already talked about my wife here. I'm really <laughs> treading on thin water. Uh, but uh, in general, are men or women more optimistic? And on top of that, is the relationship with optimism and health different for men or women? Any re any evidence there? I can help uh, with the second question there. So mm -hmm. uh, the research on psychological variables and health outcomes is quite mixed. Mm -hmm. Um, there's not been a lot in the optimism area, but we, we did a recent study looking at it in older adults and nationally representative sample. And we found that uh, the association between optimism and, and healthy aging, which we defined as staying free from chronic conditions, uh, physical functioning problems, and uh, keeping intact cognitive functioning, mm -hmm. uh, the association was actually stronger in, in men than in women. So interesting. interesting. Yeah. Huh. But, but men weren't, aren't, aren't necessarily more or less optimistic, or I don't know if you looked at it in that study, but it's just the relationship with health is stronger in men. And yeah, and that study it was. Yeah, that's really interesting. Bill, you have any uh, work on sex differences or gender differences? Uh, so a lot of studies find that men are slightly higher, but then- In optimism. Uh, in optimism, yeah. But then we, we, we use a lot of health, uh, samples of older adults. And mm -hmm. in some cases, those gender differences are reversed. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the moral of the story is that they're not huge. Um, yeah. And like, be. like all the other things we were talking about, you know, SES or different countries, right. there's plenty of contextual to the cohorts that you're looking at, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think, yeah, like Eric's point about maybe it being more important sometimes for men or women for some outcomes is, is more of an interesting question than say men and women being more optimistic. And yeah, it looks like there's more consistent answers with Eric's, but, but, but overall it's, it looks like the differences are so small that it's, mm -hmm. it's rarely kind of the subject of its own research actually. Okay, interesting. All right, well, I think we're gonna have to wrap up pretty soon, but I'm gonna ask each of you individually to tell me honestly, do you believe that optimism has a causal effect on your health? Eric, I'll ask you first. Oh man. Okay. And my personal <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I, I think so. There's more research you need, but I, I think so. Okay. Phil, you're more skeptical. Let's hear it. Does my, does my career depend on this? I mean, I do this research. <laughs> yes, but it's um, good to have skepticism about the hypotheses that you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some mechanisms that we thought were, would work out mm -hmm. that haven't. Um, mm -hmm. I think some of the relationship is heritable where, you know, mm -hmm. like you were saying earlier, like 
healthy people do healthy things and also think positively. I think that all goes together. But but I think our longitudinal work has kind of solidified that there's probably a causal direction uh, pointing to optimism leading to better things. Um, and yeah, the fact that optimism is resilient when bad things happen, uh, so the reverse arrow. Uh, so I think all together, yeah. Uh, and you know, I think the ultimate question is if you change optimism, does that lead to better things? And yeah. uh, there That's haven't been super comprehensive stuff on that. So, so I'll That's punt, I'll push, I'll push. <laughs> I, I'm optimistic that optimism is optimistically <laughs> but uh, just related to good things. Cool. But, yeah, All right, great. I'd like to put a nuance, sorry, as a yeah, scientist. Please. That, uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we also see um, it's probably causal for some things, but maybe not others. So uh, in our own sense. work that uh, with cancer outcomes, we don't see associations at all, but mm -hmm. some other ones like cardiovascular and uh, cerebrovascular are associations. So. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. Very interesting. Well, I'll go on record as saying that I do believe in the power of positive thinking. I, I really, truly believe it has a direct effect on, on your actual health, uh, not just through behaviors, but like just the power of positive thinking. I really do. Um, it seems to be so much evidence for that. So this has been a really cool discussion. I really appreciate it. Um, and so we're going to end the conversation here. And I want to thank Eric and Bill for joining us in this conversation. And I'd like to thank Sue Bevan for producing this episode. Before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee at the annual meeting, which is going to be virtually held this year in June. And it also gets you access to the SER library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate your listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks. <laughs>